humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio on the lovely AM 950, talking to you from from Eden Prairie, Minnesota, also known as the Twin Cities, out to the world. Hello. It's another Monday. It's another Ellie 2.0 Radio show, and we are inching our way towards uh, the big election. So, um, on today's show, we've, I'm going to start out by talking about an idealist who is currently languishing in a jail cell in Vietnam. The big interview is going to be an encore interview from earlier this year of Michael Mater and Sam Harper of Hippie Feet, who are doing incredible things to help uh, the homeless as well as to supply socks. And in my C block, I'm going to talk about um, some apprehension I have as we do inch to that election. Shall we get started? Uh, much of what I'm going to share here is from an October 14th, 2020 New York Times article by Richard Paddock. Our featured idealist is a Vietnamese journalist, blogger, and activist named Pham Don Tran, who was arrested by Vietnamese security police on October 6th. Now, I'm going to assume that almost none of you hearing my voice right now know about Tran, but she is a big deal in Vietnam. And she's a big deal in Southeast Asia. Tron, who is 42 years old, has spent the last several years reporting on and criticizing the Vietnamese government over its anti-democratic and authoritarian policies. Uh, She uh, was the curator of a blog, Journal of Law, that had 28,000 hits a day and a huge number of visitors. She is also the author of nine books, the latest titled Politics for Everyone. In the past, Tran has reported on an environmental disaster when a Taiwanese-owned steel factory discharged toxic waste into the sea along Vietnam's central coast. The Vietnamese authorities apparently tried to downplay or ignore that. And, of course, Vietnam is in the midst of trying to transform – well, it is transforming the country um, um, into – Um, an economic powerhouse because there are a lot of manufacturing facilities in Taiwan and the Vietnamese, excuse me, in Vietnam. And the Vietnamese government uh, certainly does not want anything that's going to damper that. Earlier this year, Tron reported on a government raid on a village near Hanoi. The raid involved 3,000 police officers who were seeking to arrest villagers. The villagers had protested the seizure of 145 acres of land uh, that were given to the country's largest telecommunications company, Vettel Corp. You see, in Vietnam, all land is owned by the state. This allows government officials to allocate land for cronies and the well-to-do. When the government seized the land from this village near Hanoi in 2017, the villagers revolted and held 19 security personnel captive. The government's raid in January of this year apparently was in retribution. And as a result of the raid, the 84-year-old village head was killed. The claim was that the village head was holding a hand grenade. This is an 84-year-old man. When Tran wrote that actually he was shot and killed while holding a cane. Um, Tran and another journalist wrote about the confrontation. They reported, um, as I just told you, uh, this did not make the Vietnamese government happy. And uh, um, in her most recent book, Politics of a Police State, Tran wrote about constant police harassment 
uh, towards her, which included posting intimate photo- photos taken off of her computer and stealing her identity documents. If you if you um, Google her name, Pham Don Trang, so it's P-H-A-M-D-O-A-N-T-R-A-N-G. If you Google her name, you will find a large number of articles about her work. And you will read and you'll find an article that um, the security police, beginning in about 2016, started to harass her. And uh, on one incident, uh, uh, while she was part of a protest, there were, a man came up to her and gave her a roundhouse kick to the knee, which ultimately resulted in serious, serious knee damage and um, a a limp that she will have for the rest of her life. In another incident, um, security personnel uh, arrested her uh, uh, placed her in a car, drove her to the out, uh, uh, to some village in nowhere, and then dropped her off without her identity cards and with barely any money. And as she stood in the village trying to figure out what to do, four uh, motorcyclists came up, took off their helmets, and started beating her with those helmets until the hum- helmets broke. In 2016, when President Obama visited Vietnam, he met with various democracy activists. Um, uh, Parenthetically, can you ever imagine President Trump doing something like that? Tron was invited to the meeting with President Obama in 2016, but she was detained by the police en route. Um, And uh, later in 2018, Tran was put under house arrest Subsequently, also in 2018, Tran was awarded the, the Homo Hamini Award by the Czech-based human rights organization People in Need. The award cited Tran's work using, quote, plain words to fight the lack of freedom, corruption, and despotism of the communist regime, unquote, in Vietnam. With her most recent arrest on October 6th, and uh, the the uh, Vietnamese government, the Ministry of Public Security, and the Hanoi police issued a declaration saying that Tran was arrested for, quote, making, storing, spreading information, materials, items for the purpose of opposing the state of Socialist Republic of Vietnam, unquote. That was, that was the charge. In other words, she was opposing the government, and that is why they arrested her. With that most re- recent arrest... A colleague released a letter that Tron had written. The letter um, had been written in advance with instructions that if she was arrested, the letter was to be released. Um, In the letter, Tron asked that her friends campaign for her freedom, but she also wanted her imprisonment to be a rallying point to fight for free elections and to end single-party rule in Vietnam. Tron wrote in this letter, quote, I don't want freedom for just myself. That's too easy. She went on to say, quote, I want something greater. Freedom for Vietnam. Human Rights Watch estimates that there are at least 130 political prisoners in Vietnam. Um, Also in the letter that Tran left, she asked the movement to be not a, a free Tran movement, but to be a movement to make the country freer for all Vietnamese. She wrote, no one wants to sit in prison, but if prison is inevitable for freedom fighters, if prison can serve a predetermined purpose, then we should happily accept it. So as you hear this, 
there is a 42-year-old idealist languishing in a Vietnamese jail, all because she believes in democracy and wants better for her country. Who knows what additional beatings or torture she has endured since her arrest on October 6th? Who knows when or if Tran will ever be freed? This truly is the epitome of idealism, and it is, in the most basic sense, what constitutes an idealist. People are suffering. People are doing this kind of work across the world, listeners. They are sacrificing their freedom and, in some cases, sacrificing their lives for ideals. And here we are in America right now, fighting between ourselves, um, at least uh, figuratively, um, abusing the democracy that we do have. And here we have our idealist Van Don Tran in Vietnam, willing to give her freedom, if not her life, for the ideal of democracy that we take so easily for granted. And, as I said, which we are abusing as I speak. Will you please give Fan Don Tran 20 seconds of your time to send her good vibes today? Will you think about her languishing in that jail cell? Will you please think about her hurting? And will you read about her? Learn about her cause and understand that we Americans, the democracy that we take for granted and that we are abusing right now, is so yearned for across the world by so many. That is the least that we can do. Hear about these people and understand them. It's the very least we can do to support an idealist. Okay, there you go. My A block. We come back from the break. Uh, you're going to hear an encore of uh, my interview of the folks, uh, creators of Hippie Feet. If, if, what you like, if you like what you hear, visit me at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug um, at gmail. I love hearing from listeners. Follow me on Twitter at elliekrug. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out reusebfm.com. This is a great way to see what we carry in the Reuse Warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out reusebfm.com. That's reusebfm, as in Better Futures Minnesota.com. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. 
Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. We're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Um, Nancy Pelosi, I've got to tell you, um, you know <laughs> she is the glue holding the country together right at the moment. So uh, now you know more about her than what you did before. And now uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help open your eyes to something that most of you probably don't know anything about. There is an organization out there named uh, Hippie Feet. And what Hippie Feet does is it uh, manufactures socks or sells socks, and it employs the homeless. And I have with me here in the studio the two founders and owners and overseers of Hippie Feet, uh, Michael Mater and Sam uh, Harper. Harper. Thank you, Sam. I should have done that better than that. Sorry about that. (laughs) No worries. I've got it written here, but I can't even read my writing. Okay. So, uh, Michael and Sam, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I am just thrilled to have you here. Um, And I, you know, I reached out. I saw you had a billboard. The the reason I'm talking to you is you had a billboard on um, Portland Avenue. Uh, that was up, I don't even know if it was up for more than a week, but I saw it and it sparked my interest. What is this hippie feet thing? And then I found you on Facebook or wherever, and then I reached out to one of you. And so that's why you're here. Okay. Awesome. All right. So both of you, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. And here's the very first question. Tell us what is hippie feet and how did it come about? Yeah, so uh, Hippie Feet is a Minneapolis-based sock and apparel company, um, but our focus as a brand is to provide jobs to homeless youth. So we focus on young people ages 16 to 24 and provide them with employment via our packaging, screen printing, and embroidery processes. Um, our goal, our mission, is to provide them with a temporary income um, that helps them kind of go about their day-to-day. Um, obviously, being homeless is an incredibly difficult thing, especially in this state here where it gets incredibly cold. Um, so we want to provide them with a quick cash opportunity. Um, that way they can earn that income rather than having to go to the streets to do something that is either illegal or unhealthy for them in their long run um, to find that quick cash. All right. So Sam, tell us, what I mean, what are, the, what are homeless youth doing relative to the socks? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that we do is our packaging process. That's where we're bringing our socks and our packaging directly into shelters. So it's a safe, convenient environment for the young people using that shelter's services. And we uh, just pay them an hourly wage to to do the packaging there. We want to not discriminate against their ability to do the individual tasks. So we're not paying them per unit or anything like that. Um, the big goal there is regardless of their ability level to provide them with that safe income. Um, really give them an alternative to having to hit the streets, kind of like Michael mentioned. Um, so every time you get a pair of hippie feet socks, on the back of the packaging is the name, initials, or signature of the young person who oh. your purchase helps employ. Holy cow, what a nice connection. That's a really great thing. And are you, so you're going to youth shelters, so are you going like to the Bridge bridge for Youth or to Youth Link or where are you going? Yeah, absolutely. We have two main uh, nonprofit partners right now uh, The Link in Minneapolis yep. and Youth Link that you just mentioned there. Absolutely. We're bringing those jobs directly into shelters and nonprofits working with, uh, working with the homeless and specifically about ages 16 to 24. Okay. Uh, so when we say homeless youth, we're not working with kids or anything like that, right, but we're right. Looking at it as being that younger, uh, impressionable age range in that sixteen to twenty-four range. Well, some of the some of the shelters I know 
won't take um, people over age 18. Um, so uh, good for you that you're able to, to bridge that kind of um, age range generally. And the socks are made where? Uh, North Carolina or Alabama, so all here in the States. Okay. All right. And you had told me off off the air, uh, Michael, that the socks are made from recycled cotton? Yeah. So we use primarily cotton to make all of our products. Um, that's going to be recycled from trimmings of T-shirts um, or organic cotton. Um, the recycled cotton is a great material because it actually uses 99% less water than traditional new cotton growth would require. Okay. Um, and the dyes are already existing in the fibers that they're recycling this yarn out of. Um, so there's no new artificial dyes dumped into the environment as a result of this uh, manufacturing process. Okay. So um, I know that right now I've got listeners who are like trying to get on their computer to find out about hippie feet. So um, Sam, can you give us uh, the give us the website and and if people want to reach out and talk with you guys by online, how can they do that? So yeah, absolutely. So the best place to find Hippie Feet products or just check out more about what we're doing is at hippiefeet.com. Now we spell it a little differently: H I P P Y. Um, it's our own little twist on it, and we're kind of calling on all the great parts of the hippie movement um, and leaving the bad ones behind. So uh, visit us on our website hippiefeet.com, um, and from there you can get in touch with us. You can check out our products but the cool thing you can do there is also look at um take a look at our blog read read around the site a little bit see some more of the work that we're doing with the homeless community um and really understand how uh supporting hippie feet can have an impact for these young people well and you have a video on at least one video on your website about a, a a younger man who talks about being having the opportunity to work for you and and how meaningful it was it is for him to do that so yeah, absolutely. Way to go. I mean, it's a wonderful website. I just want to tell you, I mean, it's very easy to navigate. I love your blog. I pulled stuff from your blog. See, I've got that. <laughs> and so I just, um, I'm re- very impressed. So, but there's a whole story here, okay? So, I mean, um, Michael, how old, can I ask how old are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm 26. Yeah, and Sam, how old are you? 26 as well. Yeah, okay. So there's part of the story, all right? Because this is... N- this is not your usual startup business by a couple of dudes just getting out of, out of college, okay? And so how did this happen? What, how did Hippie Feet come about and why are you in it? So, and I have a whole lot of other questions, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so um, I first had the idea for Hippie Feet while I was a senior in college. Um, I graduated from River Falls in 2016, um, but prior to graduation in the fall semester of my senior year, um, I had a traumatic brain injury. So I took a fall off of my skateboard, um, cracked my noggin open, and unfortunately was unable to go to school that semester and unable to work for a little over three months. Um, that put me in a really uh, peculiar situation uh, where I couldn't earn the income to pay for my own bills. I couldn't pay my rent. I couldn't pay groceries. I had to rely on family and friends to not just financially support me, but emotionally and physically support me as well. Um, I had friends pick me up, drive me around. I had family kind of check in on me, make sure that I was doing okay uh, during this period of time. And I recognized that Without that support group, um, homelessness was more than likely the outcome uh, of that injury. And I wanted to create a business, create a brand that acted as a support group for others that weren't as fortunate as I. So that was kind of the initial inspiration for Hippie Feet. And the reason that we associate with the homeless community um, is because how easily uh, homeless can happen. Um, It can happen to anybody. Um, It really just requires one hardship um, and then that lack of a support group. So we wanted to develop a brand that was that support group for those that didn't have one. Okay, so so I'm hearing a huge amount of empathy 
from you. Were you that way? Were you empathetic always? Or did your unfortunate accident, I'm sorry you went through that, did it change the way you viewed the world in terms of empathy for others? You know, I've, I've always been empathetic, but this injury really kind of like propelled that to the next level. Um, it really made me kind of look inside myself and then look outside of the world and start asking some of those hard questions. Um, you know, I had grown up in a very fortunate home. Um, I had, um, you know, the opportunities to do anything that I wanted to do as a child, sports, um, you know, extracurriculars, what have you. Um, so I was fortunate. Um, but this injury kind of really made me look um, outside of myself, outside of my uh, current existence and, and start asking, you know, what is it that can I, I can do to help others that didn't have what I had growing up or don't have what I have currently? Um, so I think that that injury kind of uh, propelled my uh, level of empathy forward. All right. Well, that's, uh, that is... That's an incredible story, but there's still more story here. And when we come back from our break, we'll talk more. Listeners, I've been speaking with the two founders of Hippie Feet, uh, Michael Mater and, and Sam Harper. And when we come back, we'll hear more about their story. And we're going to hear more about them as idealistic 26-year-olds. We'll be back in a second. If you're looking to save money on your home or building improvement project, check out Better Futures Minnesota's reuse retail warehouse in South Minneapolis. We carry salvage building materials such as cabinetry, flooring, plumbing fixtures, appliances, lighting, and more. Saving you money and saving the planet by keeping these items out of the landfill, by giving them another life. Selections change daily, and we also take donations. Go to betterfuturesminnesota.com and look under Reuse Warehouse to learn more. Let us know AM950 sent you. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. And we're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. Um, before we took our break, I was speaking with uh, Michael Mater and Sam Harper, the two founders and current owners of Hippie Feet, um, a sock-selling manu- sock uh, company here in the Twin Cities that is doing good because it's employing homeless youth, 16 to 24, homeless young people, and helping give them some form of income as they're dealing with their uh, homelessness situation, Right. Sam, before we took our break, you know, Michael had kind of laid out a little bit about how he was the inspiration for this as a result of a tragic accident. And I'm really glad to see that you're here. And, and I, I, when I was a trial lawyer, I actually used to deal with a lot of people who had TBI, train, traumatic brain injuries. So I'm glad to see that you're doing this. Thank you. Um, but Sam, how did this come about? How did you, you and Michael were not friends. I mean, you, you didn't even know each other. So how did, the, what, how did you guys get together? Yeah, absolutely. So, and how long ago was it too? Yeah, so uh, this goes back to my senior year of college. Um, that would have been 20, the 2015-2016 year. And uh, Michael and I had some mutual friends, and I think we had gotten together in a group of people over, over a holiday break. Um, 
a group of probably 10 people and we talked for maybe 10 minutes that night. Um, and then we went our separate ways. And uh, as I was approaching graduation the following spring, I get a phone call from him um, saying, hey, I have this idea on a business. Uh, I got some funding through the University of Wisconsin uh, college system. Um, would you mind coming and sitting down and talking about it with me? And so uh, we got together on a Tuesday night at probably 6 o'clock at night um, at a bar in my hometown of Hudson. And I thought, heck yeah, I'll let this guy buy me a beer. That sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm a broke college student, or I just finished <laughs> up being a broke college student. That sounds ideal. Um, so we got together at about 6 o'clock at night, assuming that we would talk for maybe an hour. And that night we ended up shutting down the bar. We left at 2 o'clock that, that night after a great conversation saying, hey, do you want to do this again next week? Um, and from there, we just kind of ran with it. We took this idea of a buy one, give one company um, donating socks to the homeless for every pair sold. That's how you started out? Absolutely. Okay. And we ended up launching it in September of that year. So we had a pretty quick turnaround time. Um, we were able to launch this company um, and actually get out and start donating socks, get out on the streets of Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, really start working with the homeless community there. Um, but every single time we did that, we left with this feeling of... Um, needing to do more, feeling like there, there is a better impact that we could be having outside of just handing somebody a pair of socks yep. and then returning two weeks later when they've worn a hole in them. Um, so that's really how we developed our, our employment program that is really the focus of the business today. Okay. Well, I mean, it's an incredible story. So, I mean, I, when I first heard about you, I thought, of course, of your competitor, Bombas, and, you know, and they're giving away one sock. But you, you've gone way farther than that because you're helping to give people, young folks who are homeless, you're giving them an opportunity to earn some money. And you're doing this here in Minneapolis. And where else are you doing this? Yeah, Minneapolis is definitely our focus, but we've been okay. able to take our program on the road as well. So we've okay. taken it to Duluth um, and Chicago as well. Okay. So that's really the idea. We call it pop-up employment because we, we look at it as a program that we can take anywhere and pop up directly in shelters wherever there's a need. So give me some idea how many pairs of socks have you um, given away or sold to date? Yeah, so we uh, initially donated about 20,000 pairs of socks. Um, Holy cow. And that was, that was at the um, end of 2018. So at the beginning of this year, 2019, we decided let's fully commit to this employment program. Um, 2018, we were doing both. And we saw, again, that it wasn't having as big of an impact as it could if we were to just solely focus on providing this kind of barrier-free barrier-free income opportunity to homeless youth. Um, so we transitioned that fully into our employment program in 2019. And today, we've provided a little over 1,400 hours of employment to more than 100 young people affected by homelessness. That's great. That's just absolutely wonderful. And if people want to – so let's make sure. If people want to buy your socks, how can they do that? Hippie, yeah. hippie feet socks. And by the way, uh, listeners, I've gone on the website. These are really funky, cool looking <laughs> socks. They are just really colorful, very imaginative. Where can people get your socks? You can find all our socks and apparel at uh, hippiefeet.com. And that's uh, hippie with a Y. Okay. All right. And and uh, do you, uh, you, you were telling me, because we're taping the show, um, this will be after you, your pop-up in the IDS building is closing today in December. Um, are you going to have other pop-ups in uh, downtown Minneapolis or in the metro here? 
So we do a number of events in the spring and summertime. Okay. Um, just kind of like going to um, the Minneapolis Pride Festival is a big event of ours in June. Um, but primarily online is where we focus our business. Um, online and then our B2B sales. So we actually do some fantastic custom products for other companies. Um, we can basically take any logo and put it on a pair of socks, and then that sock directly um, creates employment for homeless youth. All right. And you were telling me before we started that uh, – was it the – Timberwolves, who yeah. reached out to you? Yeah, we, we did a sock for the Timberwolves at the beginning of this year. Um, we have a number of fantastic partners. Uh, the U of M Masonic Children's Hospital, Timberwolves. Um, we've done some work with Microsoft in the past as well. So um, that's a great way for us to grow as a brand and a great way for us to create significant numbers of hours of employment for homeless youth is through these kind of custom uh, collaborations. All right. So listeners, if you're if you're listening, you've got a, you've got a company or you've got some entity that you want to give a very unique um, kind of customer present for or, or relationship present, reach out to you guys, right? And, Absolutely. And give socks. All right. So now uh, we've got a, a little bit more than uh, seven minutes here to speak. And uh, now I want to talk about the two of you as idealists, okay? I've got to tell you, it's not often I get 26-year-old or even 20-something or even 30-something-olds here to talk about being idealistic um, sometimes, but I think you might be the two youngest guys I've had on the show and um, in, you know, a hundred different shows. Um, it's not a given in today's world that you would be doing this. So, uh, Sam, what, what made you an idealist? Because this is not your first throw at, at trying to help people. You, you were involved with Save Your Melon before, yeah, right? Yeah, I love your melon, the uh, Minneapolis-based hat company. Yeah. Absolutely. I worked with them uh, throughout college and sat on their board of directors for a couple of years there right. um, as they were growing. And, you know, it, it, I guess the overall idea of why I want to work in this space, that helping others, um, there's, there are big conversations right now around privilege and the idea that, um, you know, some people come into this world with advantages um, just by the accident of birth. And with that, I think there needs to be a follow-up conversation about responsibility. Um, and I, I, I'm born in the U.S. I am lucky enough to have an education. I have a loving family supporting me. Um, and with those tremendous privileges, I want to take those and pay them forward um, and really, I feel a sense of responsibility with that, a, a, a need to give back and a need to have a deeper impact. Um, so graduating college, you're kind of faced with a fork in the road, um, some choices of what you want to do. And I wanted to go a route that would have an impact and make a difference for others. Okay. Well, thank, was there somebody in your family, some role model that you had that triggered, put some seed inside you that you needed to give back? Because again, it's not a given guys, all right, that yeah. would be here doing this. Absolutely. I would have to say I had a, a grandmother who was just an absolute inspiration to me. She was a, a single mother to my mom and my uncle, um, living through some really sort of hard circumstances as she was bringing them up. Um, and it was that constant passion for making their lives better and trying to to um, work selflessly to improve the lives of others around her, um, maintain that that focus on others even when times were hard for her. Um, that's an absolute inspiration for me, and that's a really sort of big, uh, been a big driver uh, behind the way I work for pretty much my whole life. And Michael, what 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 hap What made you an idealist? I mean, you talked about your accident, and I can appreciate that, but there had to be something deep down before that to cause you to have this view about the world. Yeah, so uh, I also had a grandmother that 
she spent her entire career volunteering or working for nonprofits. Um, so her kind of focus as an individual was to give back. She really wanted to make her efforts um, have a positive effect on the people around her. Um, my mom was an elementary school teacher, still is. Uh, so she's kind of out there shaping our youth. And I, I think from from that side of the family, I definitely kind of took on this, this sense of empathy and, as Sam says, responsibility as well. Uh, I really wanted to... You know, give back to the people that I fell for, the people that I, you know, could relate to their struggles, um, not on the same level that they could, obviously, but in some small way, if I could relate to their pain, if I could relate to the hardship that they're going through, I wanted to do what I could um, with my resources to, to give back to those people. So, um, and, and I'm going to use the two of you as much as I can to get educated. In your cohorts, okay, in your mid-20-something cohort of friends and family, do is this idea about recognizing privilege that you you talked about Sam is this more prevalent and is and in your cohort are there more people that are saying we're not going to operate as business as usual we're going to try and and approach this world in a different way which of course is that's idealistic i, I mean is is there more of that with your cohort than what you're seeing in the 30 somethings the 40 somethings that yeah you know? well i i think it's certainly present and i i don't know if i can compare it to other sort of age groups um but there's there's still resistance as well um, in our age group, there are people that I think look at the idea of privilege as being an attack on them, uh, uh, rather than you know, rather than just sort of a responsibility, truth, yep. and a responsibility. Right. Absolutely. Right. Um, so I, I, there's certainly discussion around it, but I can't say that there, there's wholesale buy-in among our our age group either. Looking to the generation younger than us, there's a lot of talk about Gen Z today. That's a group where I see that wholesale acknowledgement of it, really that buy-in to the idea that privilege is a real thing. And with it, there has yep. to be corresponding action. Well, and, you know, and I do, I, I do a lot of inclusivity work around the country, and um, I'm actually launching a talk around white fragility and around, you know, the, the inability of some people, a lot of people that are of old, older you know, more years, um, ha being unable to even have a conversation around privilege, you know, being unable to have a conversation around skin, how skin color impacts and affects people, you know, and these are, and of course, these are the people that are at the levers, you know, they're the ones who control things. Um, but I, you know, I just want the two of you to know that I really respect you. I really do. And I am just... Um, thrilled that you're, you know, you're doing hippie feet and that you are out there doing things with people who don't have hope. I mean, I'm assuming you're meeting a lot of people in shelters who have lost hope for a lot of different things. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that I'm always fascinated um, by with the young people that we work with. Um, they have some of the biggest uh, struggles ahead of them still. Um, they have some of the least amount of resource, um, but they still manage to look at their peers, look at the people that they're experiencing homelessness or hardship with, and feel a level of responsibility towards them. Um, they are a very tight-knit and loyal group. Um, I've seen people pull the last five bucks out of their own pocket and give it to somebody else because yeah. they need it more. And these are people that have just about nothing. Um, and I think those are lessons that all of us can learn from is when you see a group of individuals that are struggling and truly struggling, look out for each other better than those of us with 
privilege look out for each other. Um, I think that's where you can draw inspiration from is, is looking at the people that, that have the least but are doing the most um, with what they have. Well, listen, um, I could talk with you all afternoon here, but I just want to thank you. I want to thank you, Michael Mater and Sam Harper from Hippie Feet. Thank you for being on LA 2.0 Radio, and go to it. Keep going at it, okay? And let me know if there's anything I can ever do to help you. All right. Well, thank you for awesome. that. Thank was, you, Ali. Thanks for being on the today. show. All right. Well, listeners, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Um, follow me on Twitter or at on Instagram. Thanks so much. We'll be back in a second. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out reusebfm.com. This is a great way to see what we carry in the reuse warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out ReuseBFM.com. That's ReuseBFM, as in Better Futures Minnesota, .com. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Ellie Krug here, AM 950. Uh, all right, so uh, Hippie Feet um, makes you smile about the work that um, those two founders are doing. Um, now I'm going to talk about something that may make you frown. We've arrived now at my C block where I talk about my work as an idealist, but for today, um, really all that I'm going to do is to report on how I'm feeling about America in the upcoming election. Well, you got a little bit sense of that in the A block, didn't you? Um, frankly, uh, one word can really sum up how I'm feeling, and that word is apprehensive. Yes, for sure. I, I have some optimism that next Tuesday will go well. The voter turnout is surging, and even young people, 18 to 26, are voting in record numbers. I mean, it may be the largest number of voters in that block ever. And Vice President Biden is still leading Trump in almost all of the battleground states. Yet, the surprise of the 2016 election looms large for me, as I am certain it looms large for many of you. My apprehension is fueled by consistent reporting about two things. The first of those things is how white Men, I call, I refer to white people as white color. White color men overwhelmingly favor Donald Trump. Um, and you can read about this in Charles Blow's New York Times column from yesterday. That would be from October 25th. Uh, the title of the column is, quote, Trump's Army of Angry White Men. 
Um, by the way, uh, I, there are a number of columnists, both in the Atlantic and in New York Times, and maybe the Post that I follow. Charles Blow is one of them. Um, I cannot recommend his writing nearly um, enough. He's an excellent writer. Among the things that Blow writes yesterday is he cites how Trump is the heir to David Duke's legacy. Will you recall that David Duke, uh, the Ku Klux Klan leader, ran for governor of Louisiana in 1991. And in that election, he received the majority of the white vote. Blow, uh, Charles Blow, in uh, the New York Times yesterday, argues that in 2020, white men prefer Trump over Biden 57% to 36%. It is a 21% gap. And Blow writes, now it's going to be a long quote, so bear with me here. Blow writes this, quote, Trump has bottled defiance and sold the serum to his acolytes and henchmen. He is fighting for white power and white heritage. He mourns the loss of, quote, beautiful monuments to racists while attacking racial sensitivity training. He is fighting to keep out foreigners unless they are from countries like Norway, an overwhelmingly white country. He is fighting for people to be foolish, like not wearing a mask in the middle of a global pandemic caused by an airborne virus. Trump is fighting for these people, and they will continue to fight for him. Trump knows that. And he knows, and, and he keeps them angry because he needs them angry. There is a strong chance that Trump won't win the coming election, but there is also a strong chance that he will win a majority of white men. The question then is how an angry Trump and those angry men will react to defeat and humiliation. Unquote. The second thing that makes me apprehensive is how Trump will cheat if the election is close. There is a great article in the November issue of The Atlantic written by Bart Gelman. The piece is titled, uh, quote, the election that could break America, unquote. In that piece, Gelman lays out all the ways that Trump and his enablers can maneuver to throw out mail-in ballots in the 79 days between the election and the inauguration. And in fact, that 79-day period between the election, the day of the election, and the day of the inauguration is called the interregnum, I-N-T-E-R-R-E-G-N-U-M, interregnum. That's a new phrase. I did not know that before. There's not enough time here to detail all the ways that Trump can cheat. Um, but the primary way is for him to instill in the idea that the election <clears throat> has been rigged. And he will focus that on the mail-in ballots. Because in many states, the mail-in ballots, they can't start counting them until the day of the election. And with the massive amount, I'm, I mean, in the car on the way in here, um, I'm, I'm hearing more than 50 million people have voted already, a large number of them by mail-in ballots. Um, in many states, they can't start counting the mail-in ballots until the day of the election, and they're overwhelmed. And many of those ballots will not be counted. <clears throat> the counting won't be done until after midnight on November 3rd. 
Now, there's this phenomenon called the blue shift. I don't know if you're aware of that, but that historically with mail-in ballots, because they do favor um, Democratic candidates, that, that the numbers shift towards blue. They shift towards blue during the, mail, during the counting of mail-in ballots. Trump knows this. The Republicans know this. And look for, if it's a close election, look for Trump to start um, degrading those mail-in ballots and calling out what he will assert is fraud, fraudulent ballots. And so that can set off a tipping point for a number of different things that are set out in in, uh, Bart Gelman's Atlantic Magazine piece. I highly recommend that you track down the piece. We need to be prepared to understand that if there is not a Biden landslide, okay, it's not going to be pretty whatsoever. Apprehension. Okay, before I go, two announcements. Once next week, that is on November 2nd, I'm going to be doing a live show. Please listen. I'd love for you to call in. Um, We're going to talk about the election. We'll talk about some other things. Second thing to tell you is I'm hosting a Zoom town hall on Wednesday, November 4th from 4 to 530 to talk about the election. Um, this would be post-election. So this is the 4th of November, 4 to 530. If you want to find out about it, go to elliekrug.com. Go to my um, upcoming engagements page and click on the Eventbrite link for November 4th and you can get in. It's free, but you need to have a ticket through Eventbrite to, to take place. Okay, that's it. Make sure you vote. And everyone you know is voting. Make sure of that. And I'll be doing it live on November 3rd. A big thanks to our sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota, which gives people a second chance. Also, I want to be, of course, do a shout out to Brett Johnson, my producer, the world's best producer, because he does great work for Ellie Krug. Trust me, a lot of sausage being made here, but Brett, make sure you don't see that. Again, um, I'd love to see you on uh, my live show next Monday at two o'clock. Uh, Call in because I love hearing from my listeners. And last but not least, yeah, if you can, catch me on the 4th um, for my live town hall on Zoom. Uh, So far, we've got about 50 people who are signed up to do it. Uh, Limit of 100. All right, listeners, um, we got one week. We've got eight days before the big election. We got to take this across the goalpost. We got to get past the finish line, whatever metaphor you want. Go out and try and change the world as well on top of that. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.